The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. Here we go. Governor Tony Evers signs the biennial state budget, but not without first executing a slew of partial vetoes with consequences for years to come. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight, I'm here and now. We speak with Governor Tony Evers about his final actions on the nearly $99 billion state budget. The mayor of Madison joins us to discuss affordable housing. And coming out of the 4th of July holiday, we look at record-breaking tourism in Wisconsin. It's Here and Now for July 7th. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. In a breaking ruling today, a Dane County judge says a lawsuit attempting to overturn Wisconsin's 1849 abortion ban will indeed move forward following an attempt to dismiss the lawsuit. Judge Diane Schlipper wrote in her ruling, quote, there is no such thing as an 1849 abortion ban in Wisconsin. A physician who performs a consensual medical abortion commits a crime only after the fetus or unborn child reaches viability. The 1849 law applies to feticide and not consensual abortions, she said. Turning to budget news, the state's record $7 billion surplus meant new opportunities and new challenges for lawmakers. Governor Tony Evers signed the Republican legislature's budget, but not without making some considerable changes with his veto authority. The months-long budget process kicked off with the governor releasing his budget, a veritable wish list of Democratic priorities. When Republicans on the Finance Committee got their crack at it, they threw out the governor's budget and started from scratch. But that boilerplate political posturing was contrasted by compromise, K-12 education spending, and shared revenue funding for local governments. What we're announcing today is the single largest investment in local governments in the history of Wisconsin. That is something that all of us should be proud of because it's being done in a collaborative Wisconsin bipartisan way. After big ticket agreements, the GOP-led budget committee raced to finish. Its work included a $3.5 billion income tax cut, giving the biggest breaks to the highest earners a $32 million cut to the UW system for diversity initiatives and cuts to the Child Care Counts program. Evers had threatened to veto the Republican budget in its entirety over such provisions, but instead used his powerful partial veto to reduce the income tax cuts from $3.5 billion to $175 million by eliminating tax cuts for the two highest income brackets and he restored the 188 UW positions related to diversity. I have also used my broad veto authority to provide school districts with predictable long-term increases for the foreseeable future. Foreseeable future became not two years of a budget, but 402 years, because Evers struck individual numbers and punctuation to increase school district levy limits through the year 24-25. Republicans were livid. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss saying, quote, 
Clearly, now that he's won re-election by taking credit for Republican ideas, it's business as usual for Governor Evers as he returns to his true liberal ideology. Here to discuss the final budget is Governor Tony Evers. And Governor, thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Frederica. So Republicans are certainly outraged by your vetoes. Uh, one Republican senator even going so far as to say they were not the work of a rational governor, but a radical. What's your response to that? That's laughable. Uh, yeah, they, we, we actually came to some good um, uh, bipartisan uh, solutions during this, during this budget including issues around affordable housing and taking care of PFAS and shared revenue. Good Lord, I mean, we, we just completely uh, made that a new system that uh, is gonna help uh, the municipalities do their important work. And, uh, you know, other, other wins too, we've uh, kind of continued fixing our roads and bridges. So, you know, the idea that somehow this is radical is, uh, in, in my view, ridiculous. We worked hard, we worked hard to get what we could. Yeah, so some Republicans though are saying uh, that your veto to increase per pupil funding for the next 400 years uh, violates the deal you made with them over school funding, that compromise of which you speak. Did it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I heard that, and I it, it's it's a breathtaking uh, uh, time to, when I hear something that I just know isn't true, and they're saying that. The bottom line is, we during those negotiations around shared revenue, we did a, came to some agreements on the issue of the next two years for public schools, not the next four hundred years, the next two years. And so I took the opportunity during the, you know, when I looked at the budget to make sure that we have some some sense of uh, rationalness going forward for our schools. And that includes having that uh, uh, revenue limit uh, be um, for some time, obviously 400 years were the digits that I had available to me. But did, did that violate anything? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, that you know, it, it's kind of sad at this point in time. We're reaching some agreements, and uh, uh, for people to go off the, the ledge here, just relax, folks. I broke no, no promises here. And yet, and yet, that levy limit um, increase going out 402 years. I mean, why did you do that? To give some. Well, first of all, as as you know, other governors have done this also. Uh, it, it has, uh, you know, with when Scott Walker was governor, he, he used it to bring that same number to zero, as I remember, over, I think, a thousand years. So it's not unusual. Those are things that are available to a governor, and, and, and uh, he or she, going forward, should be able to use it just, just like I did. It gives our schools some notion of, of reality that uh, the, the legislature and the governors going forward will consider public education a top priority. So I don't think uh, very many people were surprised that you vetoed the income tax cut for the top bracket, but you also vetoed the tax cuts for the third bracket, which kicks in uh, for couples making more than $36,000. Isn't that the middle class that you wanted to see get a tax cut? Well, first of all, the middle class did get a tax cut in this uh, and is pr primarily in the neighborhood of $1.75 million. But that, that 
same uh, area that you're talking about, the same, uh, it goes up to, I think, $400,000, which I don't believe on anybody's guesstimate would be considered uh, middle class. The bottom line here, though, by doing the veto as I did, everybody got a tax cut. Everybody, wealthy, uh, poor, uh, people in the middle, mostly people in the middle got the best deal. And uh, I feel good, I feel confident about that. We, we've we worked together with the legislature over the past uh, several years to bring $1.5 billion in tax cuts, almost the vast majority of that for middle class folks in Wisconsin. So that third tax bracket goes from 36,000 all the way up to 405,000 as you as you mentioned for married couples. Would you support breaking that up into separate tax brackets in order to more precisely kind of target relief for the middle class? Yes, and uh, and hopefully the legislature, you know, we have some options going forward. There's plenty of money left in the budget in in our reserves. And if they want to bring something back, but if it's all of, if it's the same old, same old, if it's if it's about let's help the wealthy and not the middle class, then that's going to be a problem, and I'll likely veto that. But the, yeah, of course, I mean that that's a big span, and uh, and I will say that four hundred five thousand dollars is not middle class. So as as to kind of reserves uh, going forward and, and the use of them, you called out uh, child care center funding as a disappointment. You wanted uh, $340 million. Republicans approved $15 million. Um, you say, again, that you left enough money in the budget for the legislature to go back in and fund that and other things like family leave, uh, which are priorities for you. Uh, reportedly, there's something like $3 billion uh, to start uh, the next budget. But why, uh, Governor, would Republicans, the Republican legislature, spend on your priorities if they didn't here in the first instance? Well, they're going to see the the what's going to happen. I mean, it's clear that uh, we're at almost full employment, and as and I deal with uh, childcare uh, providers almost every single day. There's going to be a whole bunch of them going out of business and or or reducing the number of children that they can take care of because they it's not a sustainable situation without some help from the from the state government. So as we do that, we're going to lose people out of the workforce. And that is a big deal, not just for Republicans. It's a big deal for Democrats also. And so, yes, I, I'm hopeful that they'll take another look at that. I, it's a perfect opportunity for us to do the right thing, make sure that we have a workforce that's going to work for everybody, and uh, and move forward. I, I, I think if it's... Uh, uh, put together in a good bipartisan way, we can make some. We can make some headway. As to funding for higher education, you restored uh, the 188 diversity and inclusion positions with a veto, but said that the UW system could recapture that 32 million dollar cut from the legislature uh, with a workforce plan. But now Speaker Voss says after that veto, restoring the 188 positions, the UW will not get the money unless it eliminates diversity programs. What's your response to that? Well, that's not what the Joint Finance Committee said. They they said there's $32 million. If you bring us back a workforce plan, uh, we will consider releasing that to them. Uh, I do not believe they say a workforce plan and let's get rid of DEI. I don't believe that's the that's what was put in there. 
So I anticipate that the, the University of Wisconsin system and Joint Finance Committee, we, we can, they can work it out. What about overall funding for higher ed in this budget? It's ridiculous. I mean, I, you know, obviously uh, we can't have the University of Wisconsin system or frankly the technical college system be, you know, have no increase. I mean, they have costs that go up just like everybody else. And uh, I would say that's unfortunately where the Republicans have been for several budgets that I've been working on and even before, having been personally on the Board of Regents, and that is there's like this war against uh, higher education. It's got to stop. If we care about workforce, we need to make sure that our tech college system and our University of Wisconsin system is strong. Uh, you and the Republican majority, as we've discussed, compromised on school funding and shared revenue. Is that goodwill gone now with your vetoes? No, no. I, you know, Republican, they may have forgotten, but Republican governors uh, vetoed things also. But uh, no, I, I don't think so. We'll, we'll continue to work together where we can. And there's going to be this kind of blah, blah, blah over the next couple of weeks that uh, the sky is falling. But at the end of the day, here's what's going to happen. We, we, we made some progress in some really important areas. We're going to continue to hopefully talk about areas that have been left fallow, and that includes higher education and childcare in particular. And we'll move forward as a state. And uh, so I, you know, I'm not going to overreact to that. We're, we're just going to continue working with people as much as possible. Why didn't you just veto the budget in its entirety? I knew that we could, we could move forward. I knew that we could make some vetoes that would make things even a little better. And, uh, and I, it, it was the right thing to do. Simple as that. All right. Governor Tony Evers, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Rodrigo. The budget also included $525 million toward affordable housing in Wisconsin. Housing is sorely needed in this state, with experts saying Wisconsin will need to build nearly 140,000 housing units during this decade to accommodate its under-65 population. In Madison, the fastest-growing city in the state, the cost of housing, both renting and buying, is out of reach for many. Needed housing units fall way short of demand due to population growth. Madison gained 5,600 residents just since 2020. The capital city is one of the most expensive places in the state to buy a home, and because the city's rental vacancy rate is so low, demand pushes the average cost of a one-bedroom over $1,400 a month, according to rental sites. How do efforts to boost affordable housing make a dent? We turn to Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, and thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, will the five measures in this affordable housing package that are part of the budget uh, between funding to rehab or converting commercial buildings in, into housing help the crunch in Madison? I certainly hope so. Um, I think we have been doing um, perhaps more than other cities around the state have in terms of the production of housing, so it doesn't change a lot for us in terms of what the city does. But anytime there's more funds uh, available to produce housing, that's helpful. So what are your city's particular pain points when it comes to not having enough housing? I, I think 
Really what we're facing is that historically, and I'm talking for decades, Madison has underproduced housing. We have not kept pace with population growth. You referenced our recent population growth, but we have been growing as a city for quite some time, and we just have not produced enough housing units. That's why we find ourselves in the problem that we're in now, and really the solution is to build more housing. And I, when I say that, I mean every type of housing. We need more single family, we need more condos, we need more apartments, we need big buildings, we need small buildings. And so we're trying to do anything we can to make it easier to produce housing. Like what? So we've done a number of things around our zoning code to make it easier to, per, to build housing by right um, or to add additional height if you're building housing or if you're building affordable housing. Um, we've made it easier to build backyard cottages. Um, we do a bunch around subsidizing affordable housing out of the city's budget as well. Um, and then we work closely with partners, um, whether that's developers, the university, um, you know, other entities in town to encourage the production of housing um, in different areas of town. And yet it seems like you need these housing units to go up right now. Yes. I mean, all of that takes kind of a long lead time. Yeah. Yeah, we do see projects take um, you know two to three years really to to come to fruition, and so it's that's why it's been so important that we work as fast as we can now to make it easier, so that we start to see the impacts of that going forward. I will say that under my administration, we have permitted thousands of housing units, and we have seen hundreds of affordable housing units come online. So we're making progress, um, but there's more that needs to be done. You know, one thing that stands out when you drive around or walk around Madison is all of these kind of luxury high-rise apartment buildings going in. Now that gives you some units, you know, it gives you some vacancy, but do those buildings ratchet up the rents for everyone? Well, so a couple of things there. First of all, you see those buildings and you think they're luxury buildings, but in fact, not all of them are. In fact, many of them have affordable components in get inside that building. So when we're subsidizing housing, we are often not creating an entire building that's affordable, but we are creating a percentage of the units in that building. And so um, that definitely helps. Um, the other thing is that there's actually good data that putting in new market rate housing um, does not raise the rents of surrounding um, of available housing. Um, now, what's, what is causing rent pressure is the lack of units, right? Because when landlords can rent for a higher rent, they are going to. And as long as we have vacancy rates that are in the one or two percent, the, the market is entirely tipped to the landlord's favor as opposed to the tenant. So this is uh, not to mention low-income housing. H how would you grade Madison on that? So we need all types of housing, but we particularly need to be creating housing that is affordable for people that are at 30% or lower of the area median income. And interestingly, that people that are between 80 and 120% of area median income. Those are the two places where we see the biggest need. Um, and so that's where we're trying to focus uh, the work that the city does to produce housing. So if, as projected, Madison is expected to grow by another 100,000 uh, people by 2050, what will the housing scape look like then? Well, I hope that we will have caught up 
um, in our deficit of housing and that we will keep pace with housing production. It does mean that Madison is going to be more dense than it is right now and that we are going to see more big buildings. We're also going to see more duplexes and triplexes and backyard cottages. Um, but I really hope the work we're doing now is going to pay off and allow us to catch up with the housing market. All right. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, thanks very much. Thank you. The tourism industry in Wisconsin hit an all-time high in 2022. That's according to a recent report from the State Department of Tourism with a total economic impact of almost $24 billion. All 72 counties had an increase over the last record-breaking year in 2019, including Bayfield, whose tourist dollars saw a 24% increase. Coming out of the big 4th of July holiday, we check in with Katie Anderson from the Bayfield Chamber and Visitor Bureau. And Katie, thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So how is the tourist season shaping up in Bayfield this summer? Well, we're right in the thick of it now. Um, it, tourism here really uh, ramps up around mid-June. Um, July, August are our busiest uh, months here in Bayfield. Um, September as well has a lot of great um, tourism activities going on. We have some new events, um, an artscape event um, in the middle of September. And then of course, going into October, we have our Bayfield Apple Festival, which is always the first full weekend in October. Yeah, so how does it compare to years past for tourism? Sure. Um, so, well, this year we won't know what the numbers are exactly for 2023 until next year. But um, the, as you had mentioned, we broke some records here. Um, it was a 24% increase in tour uh, tourism spending over 2019, um, and even in 2022, uh, we also upped our uh, tourism spending in September, which is technically a, a shoulder season with the launch of a new event called Artscape. And um, we were able to bring in another, an additional $700,000 to the Bayfield County and Madeline Island area through that, um, through that uh, event, uh, Artscape. And this year we're doing that again. It'll only be our second year doing that and it's uh, September 9th through 17th. So um, we have a lot of, we have some new initiatives, um, which is helping bring in more people and hopefully we can continue that throughout the years. Um, but even since, uh, you know, 2020, Bayfield really saw a lot of people come here in 2020 to get away from the city mm -hmm. activity. So we're, see we're still seeing that momentum. So you're, you're super busy and, and Bayfield obviously is a really beautiful place uh, to visit, but are local businesses able to keep up? Well, one of the challenges here is finding uh, workers. Um, we are noticing that, um, and it's kind of a double-edged sword because I think people want to live here, um, but the problem seems to be housing. Um, there's not a lot of options here in Bayfield County uh, for housing, but those are some initiatives that we are hoping to partner with some local um, other entities to try to help spur that. Okay, I know that the state budget that just was signed into law has uh, some money in it for uh, the Department of Tourism. What more uh, could areas like yours use from the state? I mean, you just spoke to affordable housing or housing uh, units, uh, period. Uh, what more could the state possibly do? 
Um, I think the housing is really the biggest piece right now. Um, one thing that was really encouraging here in Bayfield, um, a lot of businesses and new businesses popped up um, within the last year or two, and that was due to um, the Main Street Bounce Back grant. Um, we had several businesses here, um, a good I know four off the top of my head for sure who took advantage of the $10,000 funding. Um, so things like that, initiatives like that do really well, could really help us uh, for economic growth here in Bayfield, especially in Bayfield County where our main industry here is tourism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we are envious that we are not in Bayfield with you. You said the weather is beautiful today, uh, but enjoy uh, this busy season and even the season going into the fall. Uh, Katie Anderson, thanks so much. Thank you. In agriculture, southern Wisconsin has seen severe and exceptional drought, with spotty rain and high temperatures testing farmers' patience, but they are holding on. Mother Nature seems to be keeping us sort of right on the edge of our seat this whole time. We're getting just enough spotty precipitation, I think, to just keep us guessing, keep us wondering if we're going to, how things are going to play out. But uh, so far, you know, I've been impressed with the crops. Um, modern genetics and management has really played a big role in the success that we've, or the, at least the lack of uh, you know, crop failure, I guess, that we've seen so far. Um, you know, we ha we have corn and beans drying up on uh, the lighter ground uh, that has been sort of unlucky with those spotty showers. But then we've got some ground that, you know, is just hanging on and you wouldn't, you wouldn't quite know we're in a drought from, at least from looking at it afar. So, you know, we're just sort of right on the edge there, I guess. I don't want people to worry yet. There's no need for like mass panic. There's never a good time to have a drought, but if you have to have a drought, it's good to have it in the early half of the season. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the news tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.